Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled, Liturgy. And, what comes to mind when you hear that word? Most likely, it brings up various associations for different people. Some find great comfort in what the word connotes because it recalls a time in their life of close connection to God. But others think of empty rituals that obscure rather than bring closer a sense of the sacred. The following is by no means meant as a comprehensive study of Christian liturgy. Far from it, that would take hours. This is just a thumbnail sketch of the genesis of some of the liturgical traditions of the church. First off, and using a broad brush, the word liturgy refers to the order and parts of a service held in a church. Even though most non-denominational evangelical churches, like the one that I'm a part of, doesn't call our order of service on a Sunday morning a liturgy, <laughs> that's in fact what it is. Technically, the word liturgy means service, but it's come to refer to all the various parts of a church service. That is, when a local church community gathers for worship. It includes the order the various events occur, how they're conducted, what scripts might be recited, what music is used, what rituals are performed, even what physical objects are employed to conduct them. Things like special clothes and furniture and even implements. Even within the same church, there may be different liturgies for different events and seasons of the year. For convenience sake, churches tend to get put into two broad categories, liturgical and non-liturgical. Liturgical churches are often also called high church, meaning that they have a set of traditions for the order of the service that includes special vestments for the priests and officiants, and follow a pattern for their service that's been conducted the same way for many years. Portions of the Bible are read, then a reading from another treasured tome of that denomination, while people sit, stand, and kneel at designated times. The clergy follows a set route through the sanctuary. In a non-liturgical church, while they may follow a regular order of service, there is little of the formalism and ritual used in a high church service. In many liturgical churches, the message that a pastor or a priest is to share each week is spelled out by the denominational hierarchy in a manual sent out annually. In a non-liturgical church, the pastor typically is free to pick whatever he wants to speak on. The great liturgies arose in the 4th to 6th centuries, then were codified in the 6th and 7th. They were much more elaborate than the order of service practiced in the churches of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Several factors led to the creation of liturgies. First of all, there's a tendency to settle on a standard way to say things when it comes to the beliefs and practices of a group. When someone states something well or does something in an impressive way, well, it tends to get repeated. Second, bishops and elders tended to take what they learned in one place and transplanted it to wherever they went. Third, a written liturgy made the services more orderly. Fourth, the desire to hold on to what was thought to be passed down by the apostles became a priority. This worked against any desire for change. Fifth, a devotion to orthodoxy combined with a concern about heresy tended to sanctify what was old and opposed innovation. Changes in liturgy often spark controversy. The main liturgies that emerged during the 5th and 6th centuries bear similarities in structure and theme, even in wording, while also having distinct features. The main liturgical traditions can be listed as, in the East, the Alexandrian, or sometimes called the Egyptian liturgies, the West Syrian family, which includes Jerusalem, Clementine, and Constantinopolitan liturgies, and then the East Syrian family, 
which includes the liturgies that were used in the Nestorian churches of the East. In the West, the principal liturgical families were Roman, Gallican, Ambrosian, Mozarbic, and Celtic. As we saw in episode 41, Pope Gregory the Great in the 7th century embellished the liturgy and rituals that were practiced in the Western Roman Church. Elaborate rituals were already a long-time tradition in the Eastern Church, influenced as it was by the court at Constantinople. If Augustine laid down the theological base for the medieval church, Pope Gregory can be credited with its liturgical foundation. But no one should assume that Gregory created things out of a vacuum. There was already extensive liturgical fodder for him to draw from. And this brings us to a 4th century document called the Pilgrimage of Etheria, or also it's known as the Travels of Agaria. We're not quite sure who she was, but we can narrow it down to either a nun or well-to-do woman of sufficient means from northern Spain. She toured the Middle East at the end of the 4th century, then wrote a long letter to some women that she calls her sisters and friends, chronicling her three-year adventure. While the beginning and the end of the letter are missing, the main body gives a detailed account of her trip made from her extensive notes. The first part describes her journey from Egypt to Sinai, ending at Constantinople. She visited Edessa and traveled extensively in Palestine. The second and much longer section is a detailed account of the services and observances of the church in Jerusalem, centered on what was known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. What's remarkable in reading her account is the tremendous sense of freedom and safety that Agaria seems to have had as she traveled over long distances through hostile environs. She was accompanied for some time by some soldiers, and no doubt these provided a measure of security. But that she felt safe even with them is remarkable and speaks of the impact that the faith was already having on the morality of the ancient world. Remarkable as well was the large number of Christian communes, monks, and bishops that she met on her travels. Every place mentioned in the Bible already had a shrine or a church. As she visited each, she used her Bible as a guide and was shown dozens of places where this or that biblical event was supposed to have occurred. Now, I've been to the Holy Land several times. I know the many sites today that claim to be the place where this or that Bible story unfolded. Most of the sites are at best a guess. What I find fascinating about Agaria's account is that already, by the end of the 4th century, most of these sites were <laughs> boasting to be the very place. I have to wonder if the obligatory souvenir shop was also hawking wares at each location. You can't read Agaria's chronicle without being impressed with how thoroughly the church had covered the Middle East in just 300 years. Even in isolated places, places mentioned just in passing in the account of the Exodus. Every little town and village mentioned in the Old and New Testaments had a church or a memorial and a group of monks ready to tell the story of what happened there. 300 years may seem like a long time, but remember that almost all of that time had been marked by the persecution of Jesus' followers. Agaria's account of the liturgy of the church in Jerusalem, which occupies the bulk of her record, is interesting because it reveals a pretty elaborate tradition for both daily services and special days of the Holy Week. They observe the hours and holy service marking off the day in different periods of devotion led by the bishop. Accepted history tells us that the idea of a liturgical year was only just beginning in Agaria's time. Her description of the practices of the Jerusalem church community make clear that many aspects of the liturgical year were already well along and had been for some time. If you're interested in reading Agaria's account for yourself, well, you can find it on the internet. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. 
Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.